get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Good to have you join us. Uh, Justin, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. You know, I spent the weekend, well, I spent last week, uh, the Ann campaign uh, was at the Legacy Conference in Chicago, and we had a really good time. Shout out to Brian Dye. Um, the Ann campaign and our leadership council had four workshops. I myself spoke on partisanship and uh, and partnerships, and it was really great, man. And then after that, I went to Denver to speak at the Democrats for Life conference. So I had a a full week, but uh, a lot of uh, speaking the gospel, talking about the intersection between politics and faith. That's fantastic. Now, I saw uh, uh, the Ann campaign is doing uh, a social media campaign today. I, I, I sent it out. Uh, but do you want to tell folks about that? We're talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of Christians out there who have a very orthodox or very orthodox when it comes to Christian doctrine and really maintaining, you know, the traditional views of the faith. But at the same time, believe social justice is part of that and that social justice is something we should be focused on. So many of you know that we talk a lot about biblical values and social justice. And so we have a whole bunch of people from our leadership council on a graphic today that we're sharing. Um, that's basically saying we're about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That means right doctrine, but also the right actions and ethics to go with that right doctrine. So uh, it should be fun, man. A lot of people sharing and hopefully it makes people feel like they're not alone in valuing doctrine, but also valuing the action that goes along with it. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, folks can check that out. Just go on Justin's Twitter feed or Instagram or on the Ann campaigns, uh, Twitter and Instagram. And you could, you could share that and, uh, uh, click through the link and, and sign up, uh, sign up to, uh, to receive emails from, uh, uh, from the Ann campaign and get involved. Uh, man, Justin. Yeah. So I, uh, I was supposed to join you at Democrats for life, uh, but my had trouble with my flight, so I ended up having the webcast uh, webcast in. I was so glad to be able to communicate with folks there, although it was kind of a, a weird setup. I, I forget the uh, the name of the people. Will know maybe someone could tweet it over. Uh, I used to be a big Power Rangers fan growing up, but I forget the name of the dude who appeared in that like that like tube, that cylinder and just kind of like overlooked everything. I felt like that. They kind of had my, like the webcast I was projected up, but I had no idea where I was. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't even hear anything in the room, but uh, someone sent me the photos after and they look, they look pretty funny, but Hey, we, we made it work. I was glad to be there at least, uh, at, at least uh, digitally. So uh, yeah, they did a, they did a great conference. And so, yeah, and Kristen, day and those uh, folks was, over there do a, do a good job they have tough work even even while we were there i think some folks from planned parenthood were kind of picketing outside of the outside of the hotel 
Um, and and there, so there was a back and forth that, as you know, uh, Planned Parenthood is kind of going back and forth with labor because they're trying to prevent uh, their some of their right. people from forming a union. And so there was a, a huge back and forth about that. But it was uh, it's not an easy job to be in the Democratic Party and talk about uh, human dignity in that regard. But I, I applaud uh, Democrats for Life for doing that. Yeah. So they're progressive, but they're busting unions. Seems like an orthodoxy and orthopraxy problem, Justin. It does. It does. <laughs> uh, great. Well, we have we have a lot to talk about this week. And, you know, I think we should just, uh, you know, start with what we saw uh, with the Helsinki summit and really the Trump's uh, uh, really President Trump's uh, the, the NATO meetings and then the summit with Putin uh it was, you know, there have been maybe a couple other events like this that received such um, uh, uh, criticism from so many quarters. Uh, perhaps the, the Charlottesville and and the president's both sides comment there, um, but this is a, a policy issue. The president's approach um, in an area that's usually less partisan than domestic policy issues, and and he just kind of kind of muffed it up. Um, uh, we saw even, you know, Fox news anchors didn't quite know how to respond after the press conference with, with Putin. Uh, Justin, do you want to break down for folks a little bit, what was happening at all in Helsinki? The, 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 why was Trump meeting with Putin and, and why do you think that folks were so, uh, so jarred by, uh, his, his conduct? Yeah, so they, at the moment they were at a, a press conference uh, with with Putin and and Trump, and the question was asked: uh, Do you hold Russia responsible, basically, for meddling in the U.S. elections? And Trump's response was that to that was, "I hold both countries responsible, meaning Russia and the U.S." And I think the U.S. has been foolish. Uh, then he went on to say that the uh, Mueller probe uh, has been a disaster and that there was zero collusion. And when I look back at this press conference, which was a complete disaster, um, it just kind of goes back. One thing is that he's just not prepared. I mean, to be a president and not be prepared for these type of conversations, especially when you're speaking to someone uh, like Putin, who is KGB. And those guys are always prepared, always three steps ahead. If you're not ready for it, that's that's kind of scary. Uh, just not being prepared with his talking points and how he should respond to these things. And then I, I think the other point was he's so focused on his election not being uh, um, not being seen as illegitimate uh, that he's always going to go back to this uh, to Mueller. He's going to talk about Clinton and all these other things instead of really just quickly answering those questions. The biggest thing I think a lot of people had a problem with is you go around selling wolf t- tickets. You talk tough to Angela Merkel You talk tough to the Democrats all the time and then you get in front of Putin and now you're charm and soft right now. (laughs) You're soft as a doctor's cotton when you're talking about Putin, but that's not how you act around everybody else. Uh, And so it leads people to believe in in some ways that either you have something to hide, you're afraid of this guy or whatever. And that's why people say, yeah, you can say there's no collusion, but why are you so soft on this guy when your own people? And here's the big part about it, too. And I almost left that out. Your own people in your intelligence community in America are telling you that they meddled. And for you not to say, yes, uh, I believe they meddled. I'm going to agree with my intelligence people and I'm going to hold them accountable when he's right there. 
it's just it's really suspect. And I think people have a big problem with that. Now, surprisingly, or or maybe not even so surprisingly, uh, ABC came out with a poll, I think, last week or maybe a few days ago uh, that shows that Americans haven't changed their opinions based on what went on. So we saw in D.C. a lot a lot of people were just really upset, as I think they should be. But when you look at Trump's polling numbers, they haven't really moved a whole lot. Uh, so, you know, still at this point, I think it's 88 percent of Republicans support uh, uh, his leadership. No, I'm sorry. Eighty eight percent of Republicans think that America's leadership has gotten stronger uh, based on, you know, what what Trump has been doing. Right. And Democrats have stayed the same. You just don't see a lot of movement uh, even after this disaster of a uh, of a conversation. Yeah. And I mean, so that poll had his his approval rating at the at the all time high for him, 45 percent. Like you said, Republicans, 88 percent approve of the job that he's doing. Uh, of the four previous White House occupants, only George W. Bush in the aftermath of 9-11 had a higher approval rating within his own party at the same point in his presidency. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a really good example of uh Trump's missteps not exactly uh, uh, resulting in political damage for him. Uh, And it's especially striking when you see Republicans like Will Inboden speaking out. Will was uh, a Bush administration official. He's now at the LBJ school at the University of Texas. And I I mean, uh, this is not a guy uh, prone to critiquing Republicans like this, he called the Helsinki summit one of the most appalling moments in the annals of presidential history. Uh, and as a recap, he, he he talked about the entire week that led up to Helsinki, and he lists out Trump's trashing of the NATO alliance. Uh, Trump called the European Union a foe of the United States, and he insulted British Prime Minister Theresa May further weakening her fragile coalition and blame the United States first for the frictions in its relationship with Russia. Uh, Inboden wrote, taken together, it was a terrible week for the Western alliance or what we not long ago called the free world. I mean, he uh, uh, again, for those who know uh, Will, he's a, he's a relatively sober-minded establishment Republican foreign policy mind, uh, you know, responding pretty pretty strongly to what what happened in Helsinki. Uh, the article, for those who want to read it, is in Foreign Policy. Uh, the the headline is "How much damage did Trump cause in Helsinki?" Which you know assumes that the question is just how much. And uh, people saw this people saw this coming. I mean, uh, as we've talked about in this podcast before, Justin. One thing you have to say is none of this is a surprise. The uh, the, the president was expressing uh, doubt about the, the the worth and value and viability of NATO during the campaign. Uh, people who know anything about foreign policy understand what a significant thing it is to have the president of the United States uh, undermining and questioning NATO. How destabilizing that is. Uh, and yet it wasn't uh, it, it didn't get salience in the campaign, but it's not like he was hiding this from us. Uh, and so the people who are expressing regret about Helsinki, uh, but but haven't expressed much dismay prior to Helsinki, I think uh, 
maybe weren't being responsible before in taking Trump seriously when he said uh, what, what what he did. Yeah, and and I'm still. I mean, the numbers are still what what gets to me. I mean, just four out of ten Americans say that Trump went too far uh, 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 when he was with Putin. Four out of ten, and then three. I think three and a half out of ten said that it was just about right. And so you're seeing this big difference between what's going on in D.C. and actually how the people feel about this issue. There may be some fatigue. <laughs> people people may not be able to react. So much is going on that they don't even react the same. Uh, to, to the foolishness. I don't know if it's being normalized or what, but that is an interesting number to see after, uh, again, just a disaster of a of a, uh, uh, a question and an answer that Trump had yeah, not too long ago. It, you know, one does have to wonder, though, we know that this is a president who pays attention to the commentary, pays attention to news. Uh, I, I'm sure he saw Neil Cavuto at Fox News talk about what uh, what a shameful moment this was. Uh, and so uh, you have to wonder if something like the president's late night tweet last night, the all caps uh, Iranian, Iranian uh, threat was uh, a, a, a sort of psychological response <laughs> uh, uh, to, to prove that he was a tough guy, that he'd stand up to a leader. Maybe it wasn't Putin, <laughs> but but maybe uh, he felt like he could send uh send uh iran a message and bolster his his uh his strength to if not his base which is standing by him no matter what to some of the uh some of the pundits that are are usually favorable toward him yeah i think that's yeah, a possibility I mean, 11 30 at, at, at night justin i mean man should just get some sleep or watch sports center. I mean, president Obama got critiqued all the time for watching sports center, but, but maybe, uh, maybe president Trump needs to add that to his, his nightly routine. Uh, with that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk about the, uh, some interesting developments in democratic politics. Uh, and we'll also talk tariffs. This is the church politics podcast. All right, we are back at the Church Politics Podcast, and uh, Justin, uh, a protectionist foreign policy, uh, uh, economic policy has been uh, a signature of Trump's political pitch uh, and of some substantive policy moves. Uh, the, the, the talk uh, this week, we talked in a previous week about uh, steel tariffs uh, and other tariffs Trump was proposing. Uh, the talk this week is about these auto tariffs uh, as retali- retaliation towards uh, primarily towards the EU for uh, uh, tr- Trump thinks that they're they're uh, uh, they're taxing uh, imports of American cars in an unfavorable way. And he, he wants to send uh, send a message. The EU uh, commission uh, president uh, Junker is going to be at the White House this week to try and make a plea on behalf of the EU to not move forward with these tariffs that will, uh, uh, some are saying, could result in uh, hundreds of thousands of fewer cars being sold, could cost uh, up to 750,000 American jobs, could increase the cost of cars uh, up to $4,000 in additional money. Uh, But Trump's tough talk on the economy and sort of uh, trying to rebalance what he sees as uneven scales is uh, something his base seems to like. I think something that 
uh, middle America seems to like uh, that that feels like um, America has been taken advantage of. What is your approach to thinking about not just the politics, uh, though that's important, but the the economics of Trump's uh, more protectionist foreign policy? Or, or I'm sorry, economic policy. Yeah. So let's first address what Trump is, what he's trying to address, right? Which is the fact that the U.S. Um, uh, auto, the U.S. had basically an auto trade deficit of 176 billion, uh, which some would say comes from the EU's 9.8 percent uh, tariff on passenger imports. Now the U.S. Up, up until now, only charges about 2.5% tariff at the moment. And Trump and some of his supporters are saying, well, we're losing because we're getting we're getting hit with these big tariffs and we're not actually um, levying as much of a tariff as we could be. And so that's kind of what he's a- addressing. Now, to your point, a lot of people, even some people within his administration are saying these auto tariffs are going to be a bad deal. It's going to really destabilize uh, the auto in uh, auto industry is going to create this trade war and we just don't need to take it there when otherwise our our economy is doing very well. So what he's trying to deal with is what he sees as some very bad uh, trade agreements that we have where we're allowing people to get away with things we shouldn't. I think there's an argument there. I think there is an argument to say some of these, you know, some of these, especially with Ch- China, because that's the other thing. So you have the auto trade uh, the auto tariff conversation, but you also have the China tariffs, which he said that he would be ready to go with five billion dollars worth of tariffs on China, which is a, a really big deal. That's almost the the full amount of the trade that they bring here um, to America. And so he's saying some of these deals are bad. Some of them really are bad. We know that China isn't necessarily a good actor. The question is, is this the time and the way to do it? Do we because we have some bad deals with China, do we take that out on our allies? How do you go about that? Anytime you're putting tariffs down, there's going to be people, whether it's bare, good for the American worker or not, who are going to be pretty upset. So I always don't jump to a conclusion because you have some business guys out there saying, no, let's not do this because it shakes up their business. However, we do have to look at the economy. And is this the right way to go about it with our allies? Do we sit down with them and try to work out something that uh, is more advantageous without placing these high tariffs on them? I mean, you're talking about up to 25% tariffs, and I'd be surprised if he did that, but up to 25% tariffs on automobiles and their parts that are coming from our allies, there's probably a better way to go about that. Now, maybe he is using this as uh, as uh, uh, a way, as a, as a pawn or a way to negotiate That's a little right. better as, as something that would help us go into negotiations starting at a different point. Uh, leverage, that's the word I was looking for. Maybe he's using this as leverage in negotiation. Either way, uh, you got to sit down with your allies and have a conversation. When it comes to China, something I think what we miss a lot in these conversations, something does need to be done about how China is conducting themselves. I'm not sure that this tariff at this moment is the way to do it, but they are not. They don't always act in good faith when it comes to trade. And so I get the idea behind it. I'm just not sure this is the right way to go about it right now when the economy is otherwise doing pretty well. We saw that stocks fell as soon as this announcement was made. So we're going to have to keep a close eye on it. Is this just tough talk 
or is it something he's really going to do? To me, it seems like something he's serious about when you have even people who are in his administration saying, hey, just so you know, I'm not for this. Yeah, I mean, it seems uh, from reports that this is not just bitterly divided the White House, but basically that's President Trump and an economic advisor, uh, Navarro, who are the really the sole proponents of it, even the trade rep, uh, according to reports, uh, is is opposed to this tariff, even though he's been supportive of of others. Uh, you really get the sense, though, that that Trump is able to uh, negotiate in this way and able to put out these kinds of uh, these kinds of ideas because we have uh, such a, a a thriving economy. And and yes, there are challenges. We've seen uh, important news this week about. In inflation uh, uh, and uh, the d- depression of wages, uh, but we have a, a thriving GDP. We have uh, uh, low levels of unemployment, and I think that's giving Trump the confidence that he has some margin to to play around with. That if he has to move forward with some kind of additional tariff, he'll do that. I think. Optimally for him, if he if he could bring the EU to the White House to to beg not to do this and maybe get uh, a reduction on the EU's tariff on uh, U.S. car imports, it would be a, a, a huge win for him. He'd be able to uh, you know claim credit for the art of the deal uh, again. And so, Justin, I I agree with you. I think d- Democrats need to be. Uh, careful on this one. I think the fact that Trump is targeting the the auto industry and uh, uh, even though some of the, like you said, the, the uh, folks on the business end are raising cautions about this, I, I, I want to underestimate Trump's ability to position himself as uh, defending the auto worker and, and the product. Uh, and, and then, you know, I'd, I'd also say this strikes me as the kind of thing that, uh, Democrats, uh, the, the party out of power will criticize now, but uh, this is a policy that could be taken up by a certain kind of Democrat in a future administration. So it does seem uh, does seem like one of those one of those things that's going to take a lot of fire uh, from the opposition party in in this case. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. Uh, but if the tables were turned, it might not might not fall that way. And so uh, especially on this yeah, I mean, on this uh, auto tariff, we, we got to see how this uh, uh, how this meeting with the EU goes this week. And maybe Trump is able to pull a rabbit out of the hat on this one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could almost see some Democrat socialists jumping on board with something like this. Now, they won't do it because it's Trump, but it might fit where, where you know, where they're going uh, with some of their conversation and with their agenda. Uh, one again, one of the things that I'm seeing is when people are criticizing this, they're not acknowledging the fact that some of these trade deals and the back and forth isn't necessarily good for the workers. So I can't defend what Trump is doing, but the idea that's kind of being placed out there that this is coming out of nowhere, he's just doing it for for no reason, is not really true. I think that's misleading. There's a reason for it. The question is, is this the best way to go about it? But we shouldn't just go along uh, and not not make sure that American workers are getting uh, the most that they should be getting 
um, when it comes to these trade deals? Are they the ones who are suffering because these deals are pretty tough? And when you look at, you know, the amount that the EU is 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 uh, putting on these tariffs, that's something to deal with. It's a conversation to be had. But how should it be had? And uh, we'll just have to see where that ends up after this. Uh, I guess it's this today or, or in the next couple of days, the EU comes to have a conversation in that regard. Well, uh, it's it's going to be interesting uh, to, to watch. I, I think Trump is squeezing uh, allies from so many different sides and angles, whether especially just over the last couple of weeks, auto tariffs, uh, questioning NATO, uh, uh, pressuring May, uh, giving uh seem, seeming to give support to uh to uh, white nationalists and, and right wing movements uh in in Europe as leaders like Merkel and May uh are trying to uh hold hold these right wing forces uh, uh under under control a bit uh you know you almost wonder if uh if this pressure is going to build to uh, a crack in major concessions from Europe, or if Trump would be better off providing, for instance, a firm American foundation of support on security issues and just press on economic, just press on the tariffs as opposed to uh, raising all sorts of questions about the security alliance. Uh, yeah, that's a good when point. we get back, we're going to, the, the, Justin, the Democrats have a new slogan. <laughs> And uh, and this is the this is the one I think uh, we'll we'll talk about it when we get back after this break. It's the Church Politics Podcast. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Justin, maybe a few months ago, we talked about uh, the Democrats' slogan uh, "Better Deal," uh, and. That one, you know, carried us for for a little while, but uh, they rolled out a new slogan uh, recently uh, for the people. Uh, I think there are all kinds of ways that you could talk about w- why this new slogan it was was selected as a way forward. Oh, what what do you what do you think of it? Do you think it'll uh, carry some new weight? I mean, there there has been talk of. Uh, speaker, uh, I'm sorry, not speaker, uh, minority leader Pelosi and minority leader Schumer rolling out some kind of policy platform, like a contract with America type of thing. Uh, uh, But but that doesn't seem to be a part of For the People. Uh, Where do you think the party is going with this? Yeah. um, Well, the first thing I thought of was I hope they don't get sued by Morgan and Morgan. That's a big, a big firm down in the southeast Atlanta and in uh, Nashville that says uh, that their their, their, uh, logo, their motto is for the people. So that's the first place that I heard it. I don't think I mean, I think it makes sense. Of course, when you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, something like this, you got to have the policy to go with it. Right. So the slogan is good. The sloganeering is good. I think that's a start. We all know that within politics, that does play a part. Does your does your policy and your agenda support that slogan? Right. And so if we are, you know, we say we're for the people. And then every time when it comes into conflict, we're really for, you know, these you know far left donors who are pulling, pulling kind of our policy and our attention away from the, you know, the poor and things of that nature. Then I don't think it gets us very far. It has to fit. Uh, everything else you're doing. And so there's potential there, uh, but it's going to take more than a slogan uh, to get uh, the party back on track. 
something like this may may say, hey, we understand that a lot of people or is maybe it's saying that we understand that the uh, Democrat socialists have some momentum and let's you know, let's make a slogan that kind of acknowledges that and, and is going along with that. That could have something to do with it. At the end of the day, I'll be looking at what policies they have uh, to make that real. And make yeah, people- I, I think uh, this slogan gives them uh, a bit of an opportunity uh, to uh, unlike a better deal, which was kind of pitched when it came out as I think unhelpfully as uh, like the folks who wanted Hillary in Wisconsin and think that was the biggest mistake of the campaign. Like those, those folks had won, like it was a, a, a white working class pitch. I think for the people is shows something that can't, it is nimble enough to be uh, a, a sort of a working class economic message, but can also uh, pretty easily serve as the banner or umbrella for a whole range of constituency based appeals. And so I could see from a, from a, uh, from an outreach and strategic perspective, uh, the, the, the reasons why that switch would happen. Uh, but, you know, it is it is a little reminiscent of all of the different slogans and approaches that the Clinton campaign had. And uh, you just got to, uh, you know, we're still not in the thick of the midterm campaign yet, but it's coming up soon. After Labor Day, it is uh, it, it's. It's a race to the finish and Democrats don't have that much more time to to figure out how they're going to approach this. And I, I guess I, I would say, you know, part of figuring out how to approach a midterm election is understanding where to give local campaigns the flexibility they need. So I don't think that the national party has to uh, come up with a message or a strategy to be deeply invested and put their thumbs on the scale in uh in in all every congressional district uh, uh but but they uh th- they do need to have a simple clear message that uh provides cover and provides the flexibility so that these campaigns know what they're dealing with, <laughs> uh, that, that these local congressional campaigns know what they can uh, count on the national party for and can know kind of where the where the uh, division of labor is. Uh, and, and it doesn't seem like the party has figured that out quite quite yet. And it's it's showing in the messaging. But but maybe this is uh, this is a turn towards something more more enduring. Maybe so. Well, uh, Justin, we have mentioned and talked about uh, Supreme Court a little bit. Uh, we we covered it a bit before uh, before Kavanaugh was announced, but uh, we had the interview with uh, Rachel Anderson, uh, and have covered some other topics since the Kavanaugh announcement. Uh, I thought it would be a good idea just to. Uh, Recap: We don't know how far off we are from uh, from hearings, although we know that they're going to be on on a pretty expedited uh, schedule. Democrats are asking for basically all of Kavanaugh's White House documents from when Kavanaugh served as staff, staff secretary at the White House, which uh, could be as many as seven million separate do- documents that would serve as fodder, to be sure. Uh, but now that we have a bit of space from the Kavanaugh announcement, uh, how how are you processing this? Uh, you, you provided a civic update 
through social media that I thought had some had some really good thoughts. Uh, how do you advise people to be thinking about this potentially, you know, historic uh, uh, Supreme Court nominee? Yeah, the question here is: uh, Is Brett Kavanaugh fit to be a judge? And you know, there are some constitutional guidelines <laughs> that really uh, that we need to understand. Uh, in order to to see that, I mean, really, this is the president's choice, and so it, it's just kind of it goes through the the Senate, but it's not really the Senate's choice, and that's changed a little bit over the years. People have taken you know a, a different uh, posture in that regard. But is he fit? Does he have the legal legal credentials? Uh, does he have anything in his past, whether it be financial or otherwise? That would put him in a position where he might be compromised. Those are the questions that need to be answered. Um, a lot of uh, progressives, and I completely understand it, were very worried uh, about this pick or just really Trump having another pick in general. Uh, you know, this is his second pick on the Supreme Court. And this does swing the court somewhat to the right. Uh, many of you know that Justice Kennedy was, uh, who just retired, was known as the swing vote on the Supreme Court, uh, especially when it came to social issues, he would uh, rule on the side of the more liberal justices where a lot of people were set in, in their ways. And you kind of knew that they're going to go with the right or they're going to go with the left. Kennedy would swing. Some of his swing votes uh, came with Planned Parenthood and Casey. Uh, also, the Obergefell decision, which had to do with gay marriage. He had shown uh, in the past, even though he, that he was a Reagan, uh, he was a Reagan nominee. He had shown in the past that he was willing to swing on certain issues. When you get rid of someone like that and you put in more of a staunch conservative, a lot of uh, liberals are going to be very nervous and progressives are very nervous about this, especially when you talk start talking about Roe versus Wade and all these other things. And so there is a lot of tension. And the thing about it is there's not much that the Democratic Party can do to stop this. Uh, they don't have the numbers. And so I think see what you're what you're seeing here with asking for the documents and all these other things is kind of a sense of helplessness, but trying to show your constituents that we're doing something. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think when he goes in front of the ju Judiciary Committee and he's being asked questions, they should really press him on his fitness. This is a major uh, seat. This is not something that we should take lightly. When you put somebody on the bench for the Supreme Court, they are there for life. And so I don't think that they should go easy on him at all. Uh, put him th through the ringer if need be. But there are certain places they shouldn't go. And I know, Michael, we'll both be looking to see if there are religious tests and things of that nature that are placed out there by Democrats asking about asking him about his religious beliefs and all those things that is not constitutional. So out of all the questions that can be asked out of, you know, all the places where someone might be biased or another, you cannot use somebody's religion to exclude them. Therefore, questions about, you know, deep questions uh, about religion are probably going to be irrelevant. I'm going to be watching to see if uh, how hard Democrats hit on that issue. But at the end of the day, is he fit or is he not fit? And while he may swing uh, the court to the right, some people are saying that other justices may actually become the swing vote once he gets in. Some think, some think that Roberts may step in and actually become the swing vote because he has such a high regard for precedent and the court in general. So we'll just have to see. Yeah, I think those are all good, good thoughts. I, I mean, We've kind of given up on, on the on the notion that judicial confirmation hearings uh, aren't supposed to be uh, policy 
referendums that uh, judicial uh, uh, that a Senate voting a senator voting to confirm a judicial nominee is not responsible for the decisions that that nominee uh, makes when on the court that that's not the Senate's responsibility as you said the Senate's primary responsibility is to test the fitness of the judge which is uh, why uh, I, I think it's uh, now, I'm not saying that that should start here, um, though it has to start somewhere. But this is not a Democratic issue. We've seen uh, Republicans put Sotomayor and Kagan through the ringer. I mean, the, the judicial confirmation process has become uh, as subject to partisanship as uh, as campaigns and as electioneering uh, uh, for some some pretty troubling uh, reasons and to some pretty troubling uh, uh, effect. I um I wrote for the L.A. Times uh, op ed page this past weekend uh, after observing, uh, frankly, how focused the Democrats' messaging was on the implications for Kavanaugh's nomination on Roe v. Wade and on abortion. And Justin, we talked about this, but. Uh, yes, abortion rights are part of the Democratic platform. Uh, to, to the extent that the judicial confirmation hearing is going to be a policy referendum, it really ought to include a broader set of concerns than just those of pro-choice uh, of uh, of pro-choice activists and the pro-choice community. Uh, the Supreme Court, believe it or not, uh, decides on quite a bit more than abortion. Uh, we've just seen recently decisions on voting rights, decisions on border enforcement, and immigration policy, environmental regulations, workers' rights, and so uh, for some reason, uh, especially in the in the week following the national nomination. It seemed like abortion was all that Democrats cared about, and I would argue that's not winning. Uh, it's not winning political message. It's also wrong on substance. And so, uh, I, I think if Democrats are going to make this about policy, they ought to focus broadly. And then, even more than that, uh, I've been impressed with Senator Cory Booker, uh, who. Uh, has uh, been pressing Kavanaugh on executive privilege and specifically trying to address whether Kavanaugh's nomination is tied to the Mueller probe and uh, and whether Trump selected him ex- explicitly, whether there's some sort of mutual understanding between uh, President Trump and Kavanaugh around uh, what would happen if a Supreme Court case, uh, what would happen if a Supreme Court case um, reached uh, reached the uh, about the Mueller probe reached reached the court? How would Kavanaugh respond? And Senator Booker is actually asking uh, Kavanaugh to commit to uh, recuse himself if if that should happen. That seems to me, Justin, to be completely within the bounds of testing the fitness of the nominee. I mean, that is exactly the, the, the type of line of questioning, whether there's merit to it or not, and that, that's why you have to investigate, but whether there's merit to it or not, uh, it's exactly what the Constitution empowers the Senate to do. And and. I would encourage Democrats to follow Senator Booker's lead and really drill drill down on uh, uh, since this nomination is taking place. Uh, 
when the president is being investigated by the FBI, let, let's make sure there's no paper trail. Let, let's let's get Kavanaugh on the record under oath saying that there was no explicit or implicit understanding that he would rule uh, a certain way. And, and, and let's push for a recusal. Uh, so it, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this how this uh, how this plays out, Justin. But uh, I think Democrats have to be really careful here because, as you said, their chances of actually affecting the outcome are are so so limited that they that they they need to have their priorities straight. As important as this uh, as this nomination is, and, and then just the last thing I'd add, uh, uh, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh's approval ratings are actually very low. He is the uh, 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 Americans support his nomination less than any of Obama's nominees and any of George W. Bush's nominees. He actually has one of the lowest ratings in, in sort of like the modern era, like kind of Bork level. And so it's it's uh, yeah. it, it, that plays into the politics of this situation as well. Oh, absolutely. I think you hit it on the head, though. A conversation about executive uh, privilege or questions on executive privilege that were that may be coming from uh, Cory Booker. That is fair game. Those are the things that that you can concentrate on in these type of hearings. And he should have to answer those questions in, in a real way. And he should be pressed on those and not, you know, you don't just let that go. That's a serious issue. And that's what we, sh- we should be getting at. Again, more and more, we're still seeing these policy questions, which are not necessarily relevant to, to what's going on in, uh, in that space. And the, and the focus purely on abortion from the left, I get it. It's a big issue uh, um, for many progressives. And obviously, it's something that's going to come up. It would come up on the right. We, we see that on the right quite a bit. And the reason that uh, people are still pleased with Trump and they're excited about the job he's doing is because he's putting people, uh, he's putting conservatives on the bench because they hope that maybe he will overturn uh, uh, Roe versus Wade. So we, we, we get that. Uh, but at the same time, there are so there are other issues that that are at uh, stake here. You're talking about voters' rights. You're talking about affirmative action. I thought your uh, your article was was excellent to point out that when you're talking about your constituents and not just the donor class or the elites who you know who are supporting or putting down the platform, but when you're talking about your actual constituents, those are issues that are going to have a very big impact on them and should be conversations we should be having. Uh, they are policy, so you you know you can't get too deeply into it, but you can ask those questions and have that conversation instead of just focus on focusing on abortion as if that's the only thing that people are concerned about. Yeah. Well, we're going to take one more quick break. Uh, when we get back, we want to actually tell you some encouraging news about uh, a f- uh, recent guest of the podcast. And so when we get back, we'll, we'll tell you about, about that to close out the episode. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Well, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast, and, and Justin, uh, last week over a twenty, basically a twenty-four hour period, uh, we saw uh, Senator Chris Coons, a former guest of the podcast, uh, reach across the aisle on two important issues. Uh, the first uh, is family separation. Uh, where he partnered with Senator James Lankford, uh, who appeared on the show with Chris Coons uh, and uh, other Republicans and Democrats in a bipartisan uh, 
uh, letter and uh, pushing policy forward on uh, on uh, to end family separation uh, at the border and to promote a reunification. Uh, I was. Uh, I, I was moved by that. Obviously, much more has to be done. Uh, uh, the senator's job is to actually uh, get the problem fixed, not just talk about it. But uh, to, for, for Chris Coons to partner and find a way to bring uh, Republicans uh, into this in a way they felt comfortable to push the administration to put forward some policy solutions was uh, was 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 really helpful. And then we also saw. Senator Coons and Jeff Flake introduced a resolution into the Senate uh, that would commend and support the Mueller probe, that would agree with the international community's assessment on Russian interference, that would reaffirm that Russia should be held accountable, and called for hearings on the Helsinki summit, which is you know pretty pretty stunning, uh, and then call for an implementation of. Russia sanctions. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we just wanted to give a shout out to Chris Coons uh, for he, he talked quite a bit on our show about about bipartisanship and a lot of people do it. Uh, but over 24 hours, we saw Chris Coons in the mix on two of the most pressing issues uh, of the day, finding ways to partner with Republicans, not just to do it uh, as a Democrat and claim it as a win for Democrats, but when you have Republicans in control of Congress, you have Republicans in the White House, uh, Democrats can be most effective sometimes in pulling in uh, Republicans who are willing to work across the aisle as well. And so shout out to Senator Chris Coons. Yeah, shout out to Senator Chris Coons. Uh, we even give him a, a church folk champ of the of the week because he's doing what the people need. Right. He's doing his job. He's finding ways to get things done and work. In a in a bipartisan environment, which is the only way that that uh, Democrats can get anything done today, and it's the best way to go about it. Uh, and so I I thank him for what he's doing. I hope other senators see this as an example. And so as as Christians, we should be rewarding whether you're a Democrat or Republican when you see somebody doing something for the common good, being bipartisan. We should reward them. We should retweet them. We should do all that other stuff instead of rewarding the folks who are actually make the, making the divide worse. Now, this is an opportunity for us to say, hey, for Coons, Flake, guys like that, we appreciate what you're doing. I may be a Republican. I may be a Democrat. We appreciate what you're doing. Please keep doing it. And then hopefully others will follow along. But those were two great moves. I hope you see more of this. And you and, I, and again, I believe we will see more of this when we start uh, incentivizing it and, and giving people a reason to go out and try to be bipartisan and get things done. There's a lot of people going around selling wolf tickets and uh, making the divide worse. This is what we need because this is why uh, the people put Absolutely. him in office. So I appreciate it. Well, Justin, it was great talking with you uh, again. I would encourage folks to check out the, the and campaigns, uh, social media campaign that kicked off uh, today on orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Would love to have you be a part of that. Uh, it links to the church politics podcast as well. So you could, you could share the Ann campaigns uh, link and also connect people uh, to, to this podcast uh, as we grow this community. And we really appreciate your support. Uh, Justin, any closing words, any big things coming up this week that the folks should pay attention to? 
Not a whole lot of big things, but I will say this. Something that was interesting to me, and you guys might want to go check it out, is former FBI director James Comey had an interesting tweet that went out yesterday. Uh, and He said this. He said, Democrats, please, please don't lose your minds and rush to the socialist left. This president and his Republican Party are counting on you to do exactly that. America's great middle wants sensible, balanced, ethical leadership. I think he tapped into something there, and I actually agree with him. Uh, we'll yeah, see what happens, but go check out know. that tweet and see. Uh, a lot of people were, a lot of yeah, Democrats it, and it, others were retweeting. Yeah, I, that. I saw it. it's just uh, so interesting to see former FBI director, former National Security Director John Brennan, who you know I, I, I work with, have great respect for. But it, it is it is weird to see to see these like senior intelligence officials become political pundits, you know, like, like I, I agree with the sentiment, uh, James Comey, but, but don't you have, don't you have enough that you're an expert on that, that you don't have to uh, be given political advice to Democrats as, as if they're. <laughs> and that has compromised his, his uh, credibility a little bit too. Like he got so political and it's like, well, you're criticized right. for making political <laughs> like, decisions in the FBI office. So, so that's an issue. I, I agree. I think it probably should have came from a, a different source, but the substance of it, I think, yeah, is uh, and, and pretty it does, accurate. You know, the fact that he keeps on dipping his toes in the water here makes me think uh, maybe he really does want to jump in. Maybe, maybe we'll see. Uh, uh, maybe we'll see him run run for office at some point. Uh, it, it sure would be interesting. I, the thing I'd like to give a shout out to is uh, the uh, the Revoice Conference. In I believe St. Louis is taking place uh, this week. Uh, my my buddy Wesley Hills a part of it. Ron uh, Bill Gal and uh, just be praying for for these folks as they meet and think about how to faithfully follow Jesus in this time. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be we'll be thinking and praying for them. Uh, all right, Justin. Well, that, that's another episode in the books. Uh, folks, we'll see you next week. Uh, for now, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, be blessed. Have a have a uh, wonderful week. Activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants. It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.